This is the sermon podcast for Salem Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem. Thanks for listening. To learn more about our church, visit salempresws.org. That's salempresws.org. We believe preaching is best when experienced as part of the larger drama of God's people gathering. Something spiritually unique happens when God's people are together. We meet each Sunday to let the liturgy shape us, to hear preaching, and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Join us Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. chapter 4, verses 31 through 44. You want to take a minute to find it. There are Bibles in the back of the pews, and that is Luke 4, 31 through 44. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed, and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her, and immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew that he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him, and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. This is the word of God for the people of God. Well, we're continuing our series in the Gospel of Luke, and this little section of Luke, for me, highlights the strangeness of Jesus and the strangeness of God's kingdom. We often want to place Jesus in a box. Uh, Sometimes we make him so mythical and so mysterious that we lose the fact that he came in flesh, a regular human amongst real people. And other times we reduce his mythical nature, and we want to reduce him to a mere teacher of morals and ethics. Um, Luke's writing actually pays particular attention to the strangeness of Jesus 
and the strangeness of the kingdom. And tonight we're going to look at, at uh, these two stories of Jesus' ministry. One where he casts out a demon and one where he heals a woman of a deathly fever. And I want to launch, launch off these stories to talk about the strangeness of the kingdom more broadly. And then focus on how Christ's ministry is strange. Karl Barth once wrote this essay called uh, The Strange World Within the Bible. It's in a broader uh, piece, but that, that's what the section was called. And, and he makes this case. He says, the Bible's full of history, religious history, literary history, cultural history, world history, and human history of every sort. A picture full of animation and color is unrolled before all who approach the Bible with open eyes. But the pleasure is short-lived. The picture on closer inspection proves quite incomprehensible and flat if it's meant only to be history. The man who's looking for history or for stories will be glad after a little to turn from the Bible to the morning paper or other books. And he goes on to note how the Bible contains history as well as answers to questions, moral guidance, and even the revelation of God. But Bart thinks that all these things are inadequate readings of the Bible because they're all just about acquiring information. The Bible is full of historical, moral, and spiritual information, but at a deeper level, the Bible draws us into a new world. It's the real world. The world as the designer intended and the scenes of renovation that our creator takes up to restore the design to its perfect shape. Luke, in addition to writing uh, this gospel that we're reading from and studying this uh, winter, he also wrote the Acts of the Apostles, which is sort of like the Gospel of Luke, Volume 2. And in Acts 17, some of Jesus' followers go to the town of Thessalonica. To preach how Jesus is the Messiah that the Old Testament points towards. And this causes all sorts of unrest amongst the synagogue. And Jesus' followers are described as those who have turned the world upside down. They are teaching history. And people don't like the implications. It's very similar to the passage from last week where Jesus is chased out of the synagogue and chased out of town. For teaching about how he's fulfilling history. In chapter 6, Luke recalls a sermon of Jesus's that's often called the Sermon on the Plain. Which actually, right before this, I noticed that I spelled plain, P-L-A-N-E. Which would be really interesting if Jesus preached a sermon on an airplane. But he didn't. It was just on a, on a flat area. It's similar to the Matthew sermon, the Sermon on the Mountain. These sermons of Jesus capture one part of the strange kingdom of God. Some people call it the upside-down kingdom. They flip so many of the unjust systems baked into earthly values. They call for economic justice and truthfulness and tolerance and compassion. They're the ethics of Jesus. I recently heard a really interesting proposition, and I wish I could remember who I heard this from, but I, I don't remember. But someone was talking about how the early followers of Jesus would find our cultural polarities very weird. Because early Christians were strongly against abortion. 
They had very strict sexual ethics. And they were borderline socialist in their rebuke of greed and their value of sharing money and property. They wouldn't know who to align themselves with in our culture. The upside-down kingdom is peculiar. It abhors greed, but it also celebrates sexual prudence. Where will those values be found consistently in our culture? Often, those of us who champion economic justice also want to broaden the definition of sexual integrity. And dare I say, many of us who champion sexual integrity find ourselves justifying materialism and private property. I appreciate these stories in Luke 4 because they push me out of my selecting reading, selective reading of the Bible for just information. When I'm just looking at it for history. When I'm just looking at it for ethics. It, because then it's easy for me to pick the information that I like. We like some of the teachings of Jesus, but we might reject the supernatural and mystical reality that he is God. Others might like Jesus' religious piety, but tend to gloss over the mercy and justice that comes with his kingdom. The teachings of Paul and Silas in Acts are the history of the Messiah, and the teachings of Jesus in Luke 6 are the ethics of the kingdom. This is information about God and his design, and it can be found in the Bible. We can learn about God's history and his kingdom ethics from the Bible. But the problem is that we often reduce Jesus and his kingdom to just these sets of ideas. We're often selective about those ideas, selective on what fits with us. And this passage in Luke 4, it messes with our categories because... These are vignettes in the strange world of God's kingdom. We can pick and choose which parts of the Bible's history or which parts of the Bible's ethics match up with our worldview. But the stories about Jesus are often strange enough that we can't reduce them. We have to simply reckon with him as a being. The kingdom is difficult to grasp. It's strange. Because it won't align with our subjective values and opinions. The kingdom challenges our views of sexuality, our views of money, our views of property, our views of mercy. And it stands alone as a strange world that we step into. The kingdom is not a party line ticket that we subscribe to. It's, it's like Narnia. It's a place we enter and we observe and we're affected by, not a set of information that we subscribe to. When we approach Jesus and his kingdom as a set of ideas to digest, we're going to struggle. We won't encounter the full, real Jesus. We'll inevitably dismiss information that we don't like and we'll emphasize the information we resonate with. This is why I love the Gospels, because they're full of stories. The stories are hard to reduce or be selective about. Luke has done us a great service by writing in his Gospel not just the teachings of Jesus, but the stories of Jesus as well. What becomes apparent is that even the people who lived amongst Jesus, right there with him, seeing all these things happen, had a hard time. Understanding him and his power. 
They tried to put him in their subjective boxes too. The people in last week's story were Jesus' hometown. Jesus' hometown, and they were upset by his teachings so much that they chased him out of the town and they wanted to drive him off of a cliff. And there's a little note in there that we often gloss over where it says that he, he got away. Which, if a group of people is, ch- if a mob is chasing a man towards a cliff and he got away, I don't think that happened naturally. The people in Jesus' town rejected him in Nazareth. And then this week, in the synagogue in Capernaum, it's different. They're embracing him, but they still don't get it. They think he's pretty great, but they obviously don't grasp that he's the Messiah. If they did, they wouldn't think, you know, we should keep him around. Maybe hire him to work in town as a local rabbi, as it implies in verse 42. You can see that they were like, hey, you should, you should stay here. In fact, Jesus had gotten away from them so that he could pray, and they interrupt his prayer time. They seem to see him as this sort of local wizard for them to enjoy and patronize. And I love Jesus' response in verse 43. He's like, yeah, I'm going to have to hit some other towns because my project is is sort of about taking the entire kingdom of the the God of the universe uh, to restore the whole cosmos. So I can't really stay here in Capernaum with you guys, okay? Which just kind of shows that they don't understand what he's up to. Of course, the demons know who he is, and they fully grasp him, but they antagonize him. Luke highlights how often Jesus is misunderstood by people. It's not until Luke 9 that somebody correctly identifies that Jesus is the Messiah. And that's from Peter. But this is the same guy who denies him on the night of his trial. This is the same guy Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, to. Shortly after the scene where, where, Jesus, where Peter identifies Jesus as the Messiah, two of the disciples get in an argument over which one of them is the greatest. Jesus is just outed as the Messiah, and they're arguing over which one of them is a bigger deal in the kingdom. And that scene is quickly followed by them trying to stop someone from healing and bringing spiritual freedom because that person's not part of Jesus' posse. The whole work of Jesus could be described as bringing healing and spiritual freedom to the oppressed, but they try to stop the person because he's not really part of their group. And Jesus says, what are you doing? Allow them to continue in that work. At the end of Luke, after the resurrection, some of Jesus' followers are walking with Jesus on the road to Emmaus, and they don't recognize him. They're distraught because they think the Messiah is dead, despite the fact that he taught them that he would rise again on the third day. Only later in the evening when he breaks bread for them do they realize that it's Jesus. All these people in Luke's gospel are near Jesus, but they do not grasp who he is. And Luke makes that clear to us because it's supposed to comfort us. I don't raise this point to shame those people or shame us for not understanding Jesus. I can't grasp what it means to cast out a demon. I have never seen that happen. I've never seen a miraculous healing. 
But even if I had like these people, I would likely still be a bit dull about it. Jesus is only strange in the way, he's only strange to us in the way that my children find it strange that I shower every day. In other words, Jesus is the enlightened one. He's the elevated being. He's strange to us because of our limited understanding. Jesus and his kingdom are strange because they don't operate in our expected norms. And what's so great about the gospel writings is that they push us to deal with the difference between our expectations and God's reality. Luke's not making Jesus reasonable. He's making sure we know he's something different than a normal human. I actually really resent when people try to normalize Jesus. I don't mean when those outside the faith describe Jesus as just a teacher. What I mean is that when people who do believe try to make Jesus seem normal and explainable. Sometimes I find some forms of apologetics do this, and I find that really annoying because they can try to make the supernatural seem reasonable and explicable. And that may work for the short term, but it doesn't work on a broader level for at least two reasons. First, I don't want Jesus to be like me. Aaron and I were listening to Sufjan Stevens the other night, and I never really noticed the last verse of a song I've heard a hundred times. He's got this song about the serial killer, John Wayne Gacy. And I think the whole greatness of the song is this last verse that I never noticed. After describing in veiled terms all the creepy and disturbing parts of Gacy's story, Sufjan sings, And in my best behavior, I'm really just like him. Look beneath the floorboards for the secrets I have hid. The things that cross my mind, the lack of sexual integrity in my mind, the envy and the materialism that consume my heart, the mean things that I think about people are so bad that I try to block them out and pretend that I'm a good person most of my hours. So upon reflection, I do not want Jesus to be like me. Maybe you're not as disturbing inside as I am. I'm sure many of you are not. But no offense, I don't find any of you impressive enough to submit my life to follow. So I don't want Jesus to be reasonable and similar to you either. The other reason I don't want Jesus to be reasonable by human standards is because... It has been inexplicably hard these past few weeks. I have in my life experienced the presence of the Holy Spirit on such a profound level that I cannot doubt that God is real and present and personal and loving. Yet those are very difficult to reconcile with the types of memorial services that our church has experienced the last few years. I can stomach that Christ is beyond my comprehension in some ways when tragedy strikes. But I would not be able to handle an unmysterious, comprehensible God when tragedy occurs because that would mean it should make sense to me. And it does not. 
I am pathetic. So if Christ is like me, then he is pathetic too. And that is useless. Thank God that he is not pathetic like me. Thank God that his kingdom is strange to me. I do not understand it. Thank God that his ways are strange to me and they do not make sense. It does not seem rational to me that an airplane can be shot down by accident. It does not make sense to me when the young die. It also does not make sense to me that a simple sentence, be silent and come out of him, like it says in verse 35, can bring a demon out of a disturbed person. It doesn't make sense to me that demons exist or that a feverish woman can be stood over, spoken to, and immediately bounce up to serve the guests in her house, full of health. If I can be confused by the tragedy of the world, and I can be confused by the miracles of Christ, then there's still room for me to believe he is God, because perhaps the problem is not him, or my ability to explain him. Well, it is my, pro- my ability to explain him. It's not whether or not he's explainable. Maybe the problem is not that miracles seem irrational, but that I cannot explain the world to myself or others. That still leaves room for a powerful Christ to move and bring resurrection into the world through the kingdom. Listen, if you doubt God or you don't believe in God, I just want to make a desperate plea because it's, it's been a really tragic week and I, I want to put all the chips on the table. I was really struck this week by something I read by the poet Christian Wyman. He noted something that I think few believers admit, which is that often a life without faith, a life without faith, doesn't feel that forlorn and incomplete. It was only after he believed that he both struggled with doubt still, but also recognized how satisfying it was to know his maker. He writes, When I think of the years when I had no faith, what I am struck by, first of all, is how little this lack disrupted my conscious life. I lived not with God, nor with his absence but in a mild abeyance of belief, drifting through the days on a tide of tiny vanities, a publication, a flirtation, a strong case made for some weak nihilism, nights all adagios and alcohol, as my mind tore luxuriously into itself. I can see now how deeply God's absence affected my unconscious life, how under me always there was this long fall that pride and fear and self-love at once protected me from and subjected me to. Was the fall into belief or into unbelief? Both. For if grace woke me to God's presence in the world and in my heart, it also woke me to his absence. I never truly felt the pain of unbelief until I began to believe. In other words, once you believe in God, you also become perhaps even more startled by how absent he seems from our world. It's not necessarily a lifestyle improvement to believe. 
It's just a more robust grasp of reality. And to you who do not believe, I know that you can see through our pleas that life is better than faith. It's not necessarily better. But I must admit, my understanding of the world feels more rich and robust, if still complicated, because I believe the great teacher Jesus was also the miraculous healer, the God of the universe. In Europe, in the late 19th and 20th century, it became vogue to describe Jesus as a great teacher. Everyone admitted with the dawn of the scientific revolution that when Jesus, what Jesus did in his healings and miracles defied science. So they were dismissed as mythical exaggerations. They were meant to, in spirit, reflect how great people thought Jesus was. He didn't actually do that stuff, but he's a, he's a big deal, so kind of fluff the stories up. And this myth view lingers a bit today in some corners of Christianity, though I think it's dying because for the most part, people have reconciled the idea that either you're willing to believe in the seemingly absurd, which is Jesus, or embrace pure humanism. I cannot embrace pure humanism. The human creature is impressive to me, but lacks much. And so I believe in wonder and miracle. I do not understand demons, but I believe in the demonic because some of the world's evils are not natural as I look at them. I believe in medicine and innovation, and I've known people who are greatly disturbed in their spirits, and I've seen medicine dull or mute that disturbance. But I've never seen it instantly bring lucidity. When Jesus casts out demons, when he heals the feverish or blind, he brings them instant freedom. God does work through medicine and therapy and innovation to bring flourishing to people. But these stories are about how incomprehensible, how instant, how holistic is the freedom of Christ's kingdom. No, it does not stop suffering, and I do not understand why. No, it does not complete, compete with an unskeptical life of naive belief. What I mean by that is that you can't take Jesus and then not have doubt. It doesn't solve that. If I didn't believe in God, I think I could be quite content to see life as music and food, and vocation, and friendship. It's not an empty pit, as sometimes Christians make it out to be. There's a lot of people who don't live with Jesus, and they seem to be doing just fine. But for myself, after peeking behind the thin veil between heaven and earth, by giving in to spiritual curiosity, I have found that there is a God. And once you can admit that, even with crises of foreign affairs, or the untimely death of a friend, you can take one step further to believe perhaps he chose to reveal himself in the peculiar choice of taking on the flesh of a human. And that's why we eat this supper every week. Maybe you sit there every week and you watch people eat the bread and drink the cup, and you think, what a strange exercise. 
Well, Christ and his kingdom are strange. If you find healings and exorcisms a bit unbelievable, if you're distraught by the problem of evil, if you call yourself a believer, but you utter doubts under your breath, Jesus sees you. Just as he saw Peter, who denied him after the Last Supper, after he took this meal. The meal is not for the convinced or the perfect or for those who have it all figured out. It's actually a strange act that reminds us this is weird. We don't totally get what's going on here. It calls us into the mystery that Jesus was not just a part of history, not just a teacher of ethics. He's God in the flesh. He came and suffered in ways some of you have suffered because of tragic death or broken relationships or in my case and many of yours, stubborn sinfulness. And for these reasons, on the night that he was betrayed, he broke bread and he gave it to him.